0: South of the Mason-Dixon. This is the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. Here is your host, Brian McClanahan. Welcome back to the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. This is your host, Brian McClanahan, and this is episode 303, covering the week of April 4th through April 8th, 2022. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, like our Gab page, and subscribe to our YouTube page. Our YouTube page is awesome. It has all of our lectures from our summer schools from 2015 or 2016 to the present time. We're putting the 2021 summer school lectures up as I speak and do this podcast. So head on over there and check that stuff out. Also, our Abbeville U videos are up there. Those are those little five-minute videos we do on various topics. And we're doing more of those. we got some really exciting stuff coming for videos. So keep that in mind. Also, our summer school is coming up July 5th through 8th. 8th, 2022. If you are a student, a graduate student, an undergraduate student, and you want to attend the summer school on a scholarship, this title, of The Summer School is a Southern Tradition this year, you want to contact Dr. Livingston and ask. Now, I'm going to send out an email about this. That brings me to my next point. Get on our email list. Just go and subscribe at Abbevilleinstitute.org. You get a free ebook exploring the Southern Tradition. But get on that email list because if you do, You'll know about this stuff. And I'm going to put a call out for graduate students and undergraduate students to get on board with this. We want students this year. We want to have a fair number of students. So if you want to come free of charge to Seabrook Island, South Carolina, July 5th through 8th, then go ahead and let us know. Also, if you're on that email list, you get our Daily dose of Dixie, Monday through Friday, our weekly email. Well, we don't have weekly email. You might get a weekly email on the weekend, something like that. You're going to get emails. When I say that... You're going to get emails. And when I say that, that means don't unsubscribe. You might get two emails a day, depending on what we're doing. Maybe we've got a Zoom webinar coming up. Our next Zoom webinar, by the way, is going to be next week, uh, April 14th. It's a Thursday. April 14th is our next Zoom webinar. We'll begin featuring Mark Andrew Holacek talking about Jefferson Hemmings. So if you want to talk about that or hear about that, then check that out in your email. So this is why you need to get the emails and why you should not unsubscribe from our email list. I know you're going to get some stuff, but don't unsubscribe. Also, if you like what we do, if you like our podcast, our website, our conferences, our videos, all of that stuff, it all costs money and it costs a lot of money to do some of these things. So consider a tax-deductible donation to the Institute. It is a way to support everything we do. It is tax-deductible to the full extent of the law. Also, make us your preferred charity at Amazon Smile. That's a painless way to help us out. Click on the Shop tab at Abbeville Institute. Uh, You can buy our logo and all kinds of cool stuff. It's high-quality embroidered stuff. So lots of great ways to support the Institute, but rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Let people know you like it. Uh, Comment on our YouTube videos. That bumps them up the algorithm. So all those things are important. And, of course, share our material on social media. We don't have a Facebook account, but you can use it. You can use Facebook to share our stuff. They, can't, they won't stop that. So use it on your own account. Put the stuff you like out there. This is a really good week at the Institute, I must say. We've had some pretty good weeks here recently. And I like this week because it's all about myths. And most importantly, the myth of union. It's the righteous cause myth. It's a Yankee-dominated myth. It's all of that. It's what we think the United States is coming from, a myth. So if you think about the United States, and people do, they think about one nation indivisible, right? This is, go out there to any conservative group and say, how do you show us you love the United States? Well, they're going to say, say the Pledge of Allegiance. And of course, that's the wrong thing to say. But the Pledge of Allegiance was invented by a socialist minister named Edward Bellamy. And um, Bellamy was certainly interested in making young minds of mush beholden to the idea of a national government. Now, in the 1860s, the Republicans were very open about what they wanted to do, and it was nationalize everything. Make sure everything is nationalized. And so, this is what we get, and we don't really have a union anymore. We have a national authority with unlimited power. Calhoun knew it in 1837. He said, look, I mean... We have a government of unlimited power right now. I don't want to hear this argument, we can't, Congress can't abolish slavery. Of course they can. They can pass a protective tariff. Why can't they abolish slavery? They can do whatever they want. So if slavery is this evil that you say it is, let's abolish it right now. And no one was willing to do that because they said, well, we can't, it's unconstitutional. But you pass an unconstitutional tariff, you do unconstitutional stuff all the time, why not this? Because you see, Calhoun knew it was a, it was rhetorical, It was political, and there was not really much substance behind it. It was simply a way to knife at the South and, more importantly, break that alliance that was developing between the West and the South. He knew it. It wasn't a real issue in the 1830s. It wasn't a moral issue. It was a political issue, and this is something everyone misses. It's something that Clyde Wilson has been talking about in this this so far five-part series on... Slavery, African-Americans in the United States and the outcome of that. But I want to talk about all these things in this week and how they all work together. It is an imperialist, culturally imperialist vision of America that's at the root of all the things that are wrong with the United States. And that culturally imperialist vision comes from New England. So let me start with that, with actually the piece by Jim Kibler on Wednesday. And the title of this is Poe's Battle with Puritan Boston. Now, this was from one of our summer schools that Jim Kibler uh, participated in. And it is a great piece because it shows you how much Edgar Allan Poe hated the Puritans, hated New England. He hated Yankees. A lot of people don't realize that. They think Poe is... You know, an American writer. He's not a Southern writer, but Poe was a Southern writer. To his core, Poe was a Southern writer. He was nothing else but that. And so if you detach Poe from the South, you actually detach Poe from himself. He was a Virginian. And his work in the South was tremendous. There would not be American Gothic without Poe, which is basically Southern Gothic. There wouldn't be American detective stories without Poe. Poe was a big supporter of people like William Gilmore Sims who became persona non grata after he wrote the anti-Uncle Tom's Cabin books. But in the romantic period, Poe was it. And of course, a lot of the impression we have of Poe, as Jim Kibler points out, is because of Rufus Griswold who wrote the first biography of Poe and made it sound like Poe was just awful. As Kibler points out, he says, this Griswold business is partly the revenge of a hurt ego. Poe had committed the cardinal sin of speaking truth about Griswold's publications and Boston puffery that puffed it. Those with inflated opinions of themselves would get even, and so they did. The Boston literati dismissed Poe as insignificant. When William Dean Howells, I call him that ultra-Yankee hater of the South, told Ralph Waldo Emerson he was ashamed he'd enjoyed Poe as a boy, Emerson replied, quote, Oh, you mean that jingle man? And that's where the phrase the jingle man comes from. Emerson called Poe the jingle man, and thereby disparaged all of Poe's poetry as jingles. And of course, Poe uses that close rhyme and incessant rhyme and rhythm. That's his trademark. Bostonian James Russell Lowell called him Juvenile. Lowell felt Poe didn't rise to moral maturity and wasn't worth a grown man's time. Lowell made the kind of sanctimonious moral judgment that Poe felt Bostonians always did. Lowell wrote a friend, quote, Poe is wholly lacking in the element of manhood, which for want of a better name we call character. In his Fable for Critics, Lowell says that Poe is two fifths fudge. Lowell berates him for criticizing Lowell's Harvard professor and friend Henry Wadsworth Longfellow and makes fun of his of his prosody, again, Emerson's jingle man. Lowell's greatest censure of Poe, however, was that he ignored the moral element in poetry. This is going to be a key point I'm trying to make. Poe wasn't a moral righteousness. He didn't have that part of it. But you see, that is the cultural imperialism that comes out of the North. Moral self-righteousness. It's what everybody hates about New England. It's what everybody hates about Karens, which are Yankees. It's what everybody hates about all these people. And so this is why this particular defense of Poe is so good. And Jim Kibler, who taught for years at the University of Georgia, is spot on. We don't have professors like Jim Kibler anymore teaching literature across the South. We just get a bunch of people who just regurgitate whatever is fashionable and literature and whoever the Americans are, and isn't New England poetry great? I remember taking a poetry appreciation course as an undergraduate, and it was all of that. Just a bunch of uh you know transcendentalist nonsense. Poe was mentioned, but never as a southerner. He was just Poe. And that's the sad thing about it. So this particular piece sets the stage for the Yankee myth of America. And the Yankee myth of America, as Clyde Wilson points out, will tell you that emancipation only failed because Southerners were evil people. But maybe it failed for other reasons. Maybe it failed when you look at money. The South had none. And so all the hand-wringing and everything else, Um, was because the South was broke, and it was broke because the North made it that way. As Clyde said, we are also told that Northerners gave up their philanthropic quest for African-American equality because of intractable Southern violence. Untrue. He says Reconstruction came to an end because the Republicans no longer needed Southern votes for a national majority, because the Northern public was disgusted with the blatant corruption, especially when two rival corrupt... Factions in the same state were demanding federal troops to protect them from each other. And as is attested by much evidence, Northern decline of interest in in African Americans in the South resulted from the disappointment of Harriet Beecher Stowe and many other abolitionists that the black people had failed to turn themselves into prim New Englanders. This mention of Harriet Beecher Stowe, she actually had a plantation in Florida. Goes down there. This is going to be great. Some utopian world. Of course, Northerners all over the place were, were grabbing up snatching up southern plantations goes down there and she starts writing disparagingly of, of blacks in the South that they don't work, they're lazy, everything else and its so they weren't Yankees. couldn't get it, becomes disillusioned, sells it and goes home. which by the way was probably the best thing overall. Clyde says the South Col I knew remembered when his what his father had witnessed as a boy during the 1876 election in Edgefield the Union soldiers voted for the Restorationist Wade Hampton rather than for the further radical Republicans then in power that despised the politicians that U.S. Grant had, Grant had ordered them to protect. This is also Hiram Rose Rebels. I mean, that letter, we have it at the Institute on, on the webpage, but Rebels saying things like, look, I'm a Republican, but you guys, you Republicans are corrupt. You're just using us as pawns. There's nothing about this. There's nothing about helping blacks in the South. It's all about your power. It's all about nationalizing everything. As John Sherman said in 1863, let's nationalize everything. So for people that don't get it, and they just live in this world of ideology, they don't get what's actually happening here. But that was the point. Everything else was incidental. I mean, everything else was just whatever we have to do to get nationalization in effect. They didn't care. Whatever we have to do to destroy the union. And, of course, you're told by these Northerners, 1619 Project, these Northern nationalists, these progressives, that the only real form of slavery in America was 1619 when blacks first showed up on the shores of Virginia. Of course, blacks were here before that. But when they showed up there and they were sold into slavery. But as Mark Andrew Holacek points out in a piece, Indentured Servitude in Early America Wait a second here. There were a lot of white slaves in America long before this, and these people were not treated well. In fact, they were treated downright awful. He says, again, white indentured servitude on plantations was generally every, anything but so mild. Working conditions were harsh, especially in the colonies harvesting tobacco. The summers in Maryland and Virginia were brutal. Other owners wanted to squeeze every bit of labor they could from a servant during indenture. And non-compliant behavior was severely punished by whippings and mutilations, giving legal, legal sanction in the early decades of the process. Thus many servants perished during their indenture, especially those indentured early early 17th century. When blacks were introduced as lifelong servants, i.e slaves, they often received better, less severe treatment on behalf of masters. As their tenure was lifelong and their cost greater than that of one indentured, purchasers were careful to select, Hardy and complicit slaves, and they were aware that overwork or severely severe physical punishment could lead to failure of investment. So what people don't get, I, I remember reading one dissertation uh, on a plantation in, uh, in Louisiana. And the plantation under built a hospital. big hospital. And this was seen as a sign of white supremacy and uh, you know, a terrorist move have a hospital because it supposedly reinforced the slaves that the owner controlled them. Now he had no evidence of the statement. It's just something that he said, well, this is purely purely terrorism here because the man is going to take care of people that are sick and receive the same men, uh, same physical care that the family would receive, same medical care. same thing. But that is a sign of terrorism. This is where this stuff is just so stupid. And you can't really make this stuff up, but this is what these people do. It's it's embarrassing that these people are masquerading as historians because their history is just so stupid. So, uh, he continues, those white servants who did gain respite when a protracted indenture had ended were often so physically and emotionally broken that they could not work their own plot of land. So their dream was... Essentially fake, false. Yet most who survived their slavish tenure had insufficient money to purchase land, and the cost of surveying a plot of land for those with sufficient money was prohibitive. Historian Gary Nash writes that opportunities for acquiring land in Maryland after 1660 and Pennsylvania after 1740 were few. Only a handful ever became property owners. 75% of free servants in Pennsylvania were on the public dole. Pennsylvania. When, When indentured servants pulled into harbors in Pennsylvania, they were left on the ships because many of them uh, didn't have the money to pay for the trip over. So what they would do, particularly if it was a family, they would sell their kids off because uh, the, the indentured people that bought indentured servants in Pennsylvania wanted the children because they could work longer. And when the children were finally sold, then the parents could pay to get off the ship. This happened a lot, and it's a sad testament to what was happening. But this is... We've talked about white slavery on this particular podcast and at the Abbeville Institute before, but this is something that happened quite a bit in, in the North, right? You don't hear about this, though. So it's all 1619. That's when America changed. But, of course, slavery, slavery, which is indentured servitude, was around before 1619 in America. The system overall was designed to benefit only the wealthy landowners, are those who invested in the system of indenturing the superfluous. The exchange between labor and owner was never meant to be a fair or just, otherwise the shift from employing sharecroppers as servants would never have occurred. In some, in the need of cheap labor, owners of plantations conspired to work white servants during their tenure beyond what was physically responsible reasonable and to keep able-bodied laborers beyond their indentures. Laws consequently put into practice by the gentry for their own sake were framed and passed to do just those things. Jefferson, thus, was right to note that indentured servants formed a considerable supply. He was, however, wrong to think that only free willers were indentured. They were indentured prostitutes, homeless children, criminals, prisoners of war, and political and religious outcasts, and the risk of the voyage alone, known to be to the free willers, was sufficient evidence that choosing to travel to the new world was due to them having exhausted all viable means of living gainfully in the old world. Moreover, the servitude, as we have seen, was seldom mild and equitable, The system took root in Virginia because of large need of cheap field labor at tobacco plantations and of other crops in other territories, like Barbados, where cane sugar was harvested and indentured servants were used. So this is the issue, right? I mean, this is hard. And I think that's what we miss in all of this. There's a complexity to American history that's not based on race, there's a complexity in American history that comes from a myth, a northern myth of American history. And that is where things go wrong. And of course, tied into this is this myth of union and permanency. And we had two pieces this week on that very issue. On Thursday, we ran a piece by Valerie Protopapas, The Constitutionality of Secession. And in this piece, she brings up that secession was never considered to be unconstitutional before 1860 and 61. In fact, several states, New York, Rhode Island, Virginia, had all come up with resumption clauses in their ratifications of the Constitution, ratification documents of the Constitution. And so because of that, they all believed that if the general government was abusing its power, they could resume their independent status. This was seen as something that was a a, a sovereign entity like a state could do. They were able to do this. And we know that secession, the discussion of secession began as early as 1794 with New England leading the way. It was 1794 when Oliver Ellsworth and Rufus King, both of New England, cornered John Taylor of Carolina in a cloakroom in the Senate and said, hey, John, let's get out. We're going to part ways. We're not going to control this government. And John Taylor was shocked. But we know New Englanders led the way in secession and they discussed it openly in the early 19th century with Jefferson's election. They discussed it with the War of 1812. They discussed it with the Louisiana Purchase. New Englanders were leading the way in secession. We know that all of these people were members of the founding generation up through 1815. We know that Jefferson was not against it necessarily. We know that other Southerners thought it was fine. And it's because they all believe that the union was voluntary. Because a union is voluntary. Any type of union, essentially, the way that we think about government has to be voluntary. Because if it's not, it's not really a union anymore. It's a tyranny. It's a despotism. And so when you don't have a voluntary union, you don't have an American system this is the Jeffersonian principle. I mean, this idea that we have the people who are, their legislative powers are incapable of annihilation. This is what Jefferson says in the Declaration. Legislative powers are incapable of annihilation. And so if they're incapable of annihilation, that means, that means that no matter what the government does, they can't be done away with. So uh, this is important to understand. It's important to get this, and that's why I like having a piece on the legality of secession. We do this every now and then. It's not to say that secession was made at the right time or even discussion of secession now. is There's a right time or a wrong time. That's not for anyone. I mean, that, that could be decided through a political question. But the simple legal authority to do it has really never been challenged. We know that Texas v. White, the Supreme Court, said, well, you can't have unilateral secession, but you can have secession if the Congress kicks you out of the Union. Now, why would they do this? They do it to provide cover. They do it to provide cover for the war. This is this decision came in the 1860s. And uh, they wouldn't say the secession was legal because that would have invalidated the entire argument that Lincoln was making. Of course, Lincoln's already dead by this point. And we know that they're going to invalidate the ability of congress to boot a state out of the union why well because congress had created military districts in the south and of course that validated what they were doing there so the supreme court is providing cover for the congress at this particular point but the question of secession had never been has never been really settled It's never really been settled because you can't beat somebody up and say the question is settled. That's a a solution by violence, and that doesn't solve a legal problem. So, again, when you start talking about this issue, can a state leave the Union? Well, it voluntarily voluntarily acceded to it. Even the states that were created after the original 13, they had to voluntarily accede to the Union. Now, the territory was the common property of the United States. True. But only the people can make a state. John C. Calhoun made this very clear when he talked about the admissions of of states in the Midwest. Only the people can make a state. Congress can't make a state. Only the people can. Only the people of an area can make a state. Congress can't say, here's a state. The people have to make the state. When you get to 1820 and look at Missouri, this is essentially what James Monroe was saying. He said, look, I will not sign any bill into law that restricts the ability of the people to control their own domestic affairs because that's not the purview of the general government. Only the people can decide these things. And if you're going to do that, you're distorting the whole nature of our federal republic. Whether you agree with what was going on there in Missouri or not, that is the proper legal position to take, according to the Constitution as ratified. And so when you look at the piece we kicked off the week with, Vito Mussomeli's, on the Union through essentially the Articles of Confederation, the Constitution, and uh, the Confederate Constitution, you see how over time there was an attempt to codify what Union actually meant. We know as early as 1754 there was discussion of Union. Benjamin Franklin proposed it, the Albany Plan of Union, And nobody wanted to do it. Why didn't anybody want to do it? Because they thought they'd be giving up power to a central authority. And Franklin wrote, he said, look, the the colonies are too provincial. Now, the parliament wasn't necessarily behind it either because they didn't want to have another layer of government there. But regardless, this is important to note that there was some discussion about union as early as the 1750s and it was rejected. There was some discussion of union in the 1760s And then finally, when we get to the 1770s, we have, with the American War for Independence, the creation of American Union. We know because of the declaration that that union had 13 independent states. They were free and independent states, 13 of them, 13 countries. Those 13 countries voluntarily joined a union, formed a union to ensure they could defeat the British and for economic reasons, military and economic reasons reasons they formed a union. Now, some of them thought that there was a mistake here, that these states had way too much power for a union. If we're really going to have a union, it needs to have more power in the center. So we had the Constitution, written in 1787, ratified in 1788. But even that Constitution had restrictions. Now, it progressed to create a little more of a national government, but we know we never got a national government out of it we know that we know this because that idea was explicitly rejected in Philadelphia and then rejected in ratification but the tendency was of course to centralization and you had individuals who were certainly interested in that push the envelope during the founding period and then into the 19th century and so when we get to the 1860s and we have another group of americans have an opportunity to write a new constitution we get the Confederate States of America Constitution. Now, this is why I think this is one of the most interesting political and legal documents in the United States history, because after 80 years, you had individuals who were able to sit down and look at the defects of the U.S. Constitution and make alterations. Alterations through convention process, which, of course, conventions are important. It's the will of the people. It's the voice of the people. But you had... In this process, certain fundamental changes made to the nature of the government. And they explicitly said at the beginning in the preamble, this is a union of states. And they said each state re- in, acts in its sovereign capacity. So they were codifying in the beginning of the document the fact that we had a union of states, not a central government with unlimited powers. Some things they left in place. For example, they left the supremacy clause in place. They left the necessary and proper clause in place. And you can question, well, my gosh, why would they do that? Because they thought they made a structural change enough in the, in the document that those, those clauses would be powerless to create a national authority. Simple things like you're going to have earmarks for everything. You're going to have a situation where the Congress, when it spends money, has to specify every bit of money that's being spent. It can't have just omnibus bills and unlimited spending. It also prohibited federally funded internal improvements. So you weren't going to have that. There was going to be no central banking system. All of that was going to go away, right? So those things were deemed to be powerless. They weren't going to hurt the Confederate States of America to have a supremacy clause or a necessary and proper clause. Of course, the presidency, six-year term, not up for re-election, with a line-item veto, they made some structural changes to the document. There's many, many more. Of course, the imbeciles who are in the mainstream history profession only point out, well, you know, the Confederate Constitution made slavery permanent because it, it said right here slavery is permanent. Of course, what they don't realize is that states in that document could still abolish slavery if they wanted to. It's just the general government could not. You know what if the Constitution operated that way? The U.S. Constitution. Of course, Calhoun would say, well, <laughs> I mean, the Congress can do whatever it wants, but uh, the argument was it can't, right? So the U.S. Constitution states had to abolish slavery. The central government could not. This was important, right? There's no difference in the two documents. In fact, it's important to rib these self-righteous, you know, righteous cause mythers that in 1861, we had two slave-holding federal republics, at least in theory, battling it out. There were still slave states in the Union, and there were slave states in the Union until the war was over. Delaware and New Jersey and Kentucky We're still slave states, technically, in the Union. So it wasn't a free union against a slave confederacy. It was a slave union against a slave confederacy. It's the way it worked. So I love all this stuff because it blows holes in all the nationalist righteous cause stuff. And I want to say something on this Vito Mussomeli piece, the last part of it. I want to read this last part and conclude with that today. He says in the early 1840s, a young historian named Mel- Mellon Chamberlain sought out one of the last surviving participants in the Battle of Concord and asked him about the experience. The man's name, name was Levi Preston. He was 91 at the time. Mr. Chamberlain record- later recorded the interview in his work, John Adams, the Statesman of the American Revolution, reprinted by uh, Kessinger Publishing in 2010. Chamberlain asked Preston why he had fought the British. The answer wasn't what the historian expected. For Preston did not speak of the oppressive British rule, the Stamp Act, the tea, act, tea Tax, the writings of philosopher John Locke. Well, then ask Chamberlain, why did you fight? Preston's answer still takes our breath away. Quote, Young man, what we meant in going for those redcoats was this. We always had governed ourselves, and we always meant to, and that and they meant that we shouldn't. Read that again. Young man, what we meant in going for these red coats was this. We always had governed ourselves, and we always meant to, and they meant that we shouldn't. It was always about self-government. Vito says it was not different in 1860. The South had no designs of conquest on other sections of the country. It wanted to govern only itself. The North wanted to govern the North, the South, the East, and the West. The North wanted to control literature The North wanted to control emancipation. The North created the myths of the Union. And there you have Yankee imperialism. Until next time, good day.